It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hello, welcome back to another episode of American Loser. It's uh, the show that has been called uh, PBS with F-bombs, and uh, it's brought to us by viewers like you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you don't know the show, uh, my name is K.P. Burke. Uh, every week uh, I bring my handsome father and my dilf of a dad, as it were. <laughs> and we sit down and we talk about uh, some of the biggest losers in American history. And, of course, we're at a shared universe studio here in Eatontown. Mike and Ming taking good care of us. Kahuna's behind the ones and twos. How you there feeling, buddy? He is. What's going on, guys? How are you? I'm not bad, man. LP, how you doing? You're good? Um, just ipsy-pipsy here. We're, we're doing fine. Well, we found some cool shit in here, and the, the thing we're going to cover today, and uh, I think we have a very apropos guest, is uh, my friend, one of uh, my favorite comics, Mr. John Moses, joins us today. Thanks for coming in, dude. Howdy, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. John, you got a kick-ass podcast called Fight Stories, right? Yeah. What do you guys do? So, um, we talk to people about fights. <laughs> now, do you have a couple of stories of your own with this, John? Is that fair to say? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, I, at last count, I, I sat down and count. Like, you know the way that you would sit down at one point in your life and count how many women you've had sex with? It's <laughs> Every man does that, if, unless, you know, it's, unless you're counting guys. But anyway, everybody counts the notches <laughs> right. on their belt. So I sat down and I was thinking, like, how many fights did I get in? And I put it at 25, and um, <laughs> which is not a, a huge amount of fights for you know people who fight all the time, but I, for like the layman, it's a good amount of fights. And I won 12 or 13 of those, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. That's right. <laughs> and then Depends uh, who's, who's judging. Yeah, yeah. And and a good and a good buddy of mine was like, no, 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 dude. There's definitely things that you've forgotten, but they, that was <laughs> that's right. That was the most I could remember. And of those fights, 21 or 22 was me completely drunk. And half of those blacked out, so all of those stories are secondhand. <laughs> but um, I've had my jaw and my nose broken on St. Patrick's Day, both on separate St. Patrick's Days. And um, the, the the podcast sort of came out of like me telling whenever I go home and my buddies we sit down and they grab beers. Where's home, by the anymore. way, just for the listeners? Toronto, Canada. Uh. So, and the good thing about Canada is there was never any you have, there was never any worry about any guns. So you would just go out and fight and be like, all right, we just left it all out there. And free health care. So and, like, exactly, dude. That's, right, right. Exactly. You're not worried about like, oh, this little dinger is going to cost me two grand, right? Right. So you could just go out and smack each other around. Um, but whenever we go home, we would always like rehash these stupid fight stories, and you know. I got a buddy of mine who was always who never got into the fight, so, so he was like the coat holder. So we just called him the coat holder. <laughs> That's right. So, hold me back. Hold me back. Yeah. So I was talking to my buddy Tyler about these, and he's got some funny fight stories. And initially, I was gonna, I'm still gonna do it. I was gonna do an album called Fight Stories: Six Wins, Six Losses, and a Tie. And uh, he was like, "Dude, we should just do a podcast." And then we we're like, "Yeah, we should get like MMA fighters and hockey players and regular Joes." So that's the thing that sort of separates us from from other podcasts is like we're trying to find like crazy, insane fight stories from like 
local townies. Like, if you think you're a tough town and like you, there's a guy that nobody wanted to fight in high school, we want to hear your secondhand stories about him, and then we want to sit down with him <laughs> right, right. and dig those fight stories out. So. Revisionist history on, yeah. the, on the great Everybody's fight. got an MMA, MMA podcast. We don't. We can't do MMA as good as those guys. We're not professionals. Everybody's true. There's guys who love NHL hockey fights. My co-host Tyler is one of those guys. He can compete with those guys as far as like his knowledge and depth of it. And we've gotten some NHL guys. We're 11 episodes in. We've already gotten two NHL interviews and a live one coming up with Colton Your Moore. guests have been phenomenal. So that's why I yeah. wanna, uh, we do have listeners for this show that I hope will check out Fight Stories. Yeah, yeah, you guys yeah. got some good shit going on over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But but really the thing that separates us is the um, is the fight stories from people you've never heard of. This is the best part. Yeah. It, do, can I expand on one fight story? Yeah, absolutely. This is like the marquee fight story. So we were in Kingston, Ontario, doing a couple of shows, and uh, a buddy of our, Denis, a buddy, he was uh, a comic on the show. And we we're like, hey, man, you want to do this fight stories thing? He had just gotten out of jail. <laughs> and he was like, like literally. This Canadian jail, too, Canadian so like Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, Trailer here. Park Boys. Oh, yeah, these guys are all like Trailer Park Boys. And he's like, nah, I mean, I can do it, but the guy you really want to talk to is Pierre. So we sit down and start talking with Pierre. Now, we had also talked to this guy, Rob Driscoll. Rob was a former heavyweight kickboxing champion of Canada and also a comedy magician. (laughs) (laughs) Which was so ridiculous. You never saw the kick coming. (laughs) (laughs) And he was was such a kind and sweet soul. And I was busting on him for being a comedy magician. And that interview went so well that when I met Pierre... I, I was like, oh, we're doing this in, the, in my hotel room, like the day after the show. And I met Pierre, and he knocks on the door. I was like, are you Pierre? And he goes, yeah. And I was so excited about it all, I laughed in his face. <laughs> and I saw every muscle in his neck tense up. And he was <laughs> like, he had like, the neck of a pit bull. And then <laughs> so we go down to sit down and do this thing. And I was like, hey, hey, hey we're comedians. He's like, no, 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 it's all right. You can uh, you can say whatever you want. I'd let you punch me twice before I even thought about doing anything to you. Jeez. And I was like, well, that's insulting. <laughs> <laughs> So Pierre has knocked out scores of people just in the streets. And, um, you know, the way he, he had pinned it, that he had assaulted somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people <laughs> throughout the course of that's his, his, uh, that's his, his track record. Yeah, yeah, his teenage <laughs> years to early 20s. And um, so, the, but one of the great stories that he had was he was outside of a bar. And uh, this was one of the time where morality was sort of on his side. There was two guys beating up one guy, and he goes, ah, he didn't like that. He wanted to let it go one-on-one. So he pulls one guy off of him. As that's happening, he gets blindsided by this guy, Kip Brennan. Now, at the time, Kip Brennan is one of the toughest guys in the NHL. He's like 6'4", 240. Um, let me Google a picture of Kip Brennan for you. Um, Akuna can probably bring it up. What team perfect. did he play for? I like it. If you put Kip Brennan in images... It'll be like one of the top three images. Anyway, so he's 6'4", 240. Pierre at the time is probably like 5'9", 165 pounds. This is so accidentally appropriate for the yeah, second right. half of we're, what we're, we're going to talk about. This is perfect. Keep, keep going, buddy. Unpack, baby. Unpack. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Just scroll down a little bit. You can tell he's a big dude. He's got a, he's got one of those uh, statue heads, too. Yeah. there's a There's a picture of him. Training for this uh, for this show with his shirt off. Anyway, so I'll find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> Kip Brennan blindsides him, and they sort of tee off, and they're going in front of the place, and then it gets broken up by a cop. Now, he, admittedly, Pierre goes, "I ah, kind of got the best of me," 
But because like Pierre and Pierre's known by everybody at this point, like the whole police department knows who he is. <laughs> and Kip Brennan is yeah, like a hometown hero, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're like, ah, get out, get out of here, Pierre. Get the fuck out of here. Go around the corner, whatever. And Kip Brandon, they're just like, all right, Kip, you know. They 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 basically break it up. Nobody gets arrested. So Pierre walk, goes around the corner. He's like, ah, I haven't had enough. Sneaks up on Pierre, who's bragging to his friends about punching him out at the Pizza Pizza. <laughs> and uh, lots of lots of good stories happen at a Pizza Pizza in Canada. <laughs> so Instead of hitting him in the back of the head or anything, he just taps him on the shoulder. He goes, you talking about me? And he goes, yeah. And then they start John again. And he goes, well, why don't we go somewhere we can finish this and it's not going to get interrupted? And he goes, all right. So he opens up a cab door and goes, get in. <laughs> they split a cab to go kick the shit out of each other <laughs> in the middle of an empty field, right? Oh, and, and on the way there, the whole time, they're just jawing at each other. And the cab driver is supposed to be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so they get out. They get out in this field, and they start squaring up. And uh, Kip Brennan, the NHL guy, goes, um, am I taking your ring off there? He kind of dinged me back a little there, kind of cut me up. He's like, yeah, no problem. You know, <laughs> Respectful of each other. And then they start going at it. They go for like five minutes. And um, it's I'm, in my mind, I imagine it's like the fight from They Live, where Roddy Roddy Piper and the black guy are <laughs> killing each other in the back alley, just like suplexes and shit. I believe oh that's God. the longest recorded fight in film history. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Because before that the was The Quiet Man with John mm. Wayne, was uh, him and Squire Danaher's fight. And then uh, They Live took over for that. Oh, one, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it, it's, I'm, I'm going to check that, uh, that clip out. It, it was fantastic, though. It was like... What a what a great fight that is! What a great fight, cinematic fight that was. But anyway, <laughs> these guys kicking the shit of each other. They both start gassing out. Pierre's like, ah, I think I've had enough. Yet enough? He's like, I've had enough. So they <laughs> they stand up, dust each other off. He's like, What do you want to do now? Pierre goes, I live across the street. If you want to come over and have some beers, <laughs> oh, that's the best. And then they go and they empty the guy's fridge in his garage, drinking <laughs> beers all night, and then don't speak after that. Part their happy ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, those are the types of stories we're trying to dig out of people. Yeah, you know. Well, this is perfect then too because uh, what we wind up doing is because the the history of. Um, you know, fisticuffs, if you will, and the fighting and all that. Mm. Stuff. This kind of comes into, uh, we found some insane stories. Uh, what we're going to cover today is just the weird history and the hard luck of boxing in America. Mm. All right, so Kahuna already said he's not a, a boxing fan, which uh, I think most not, of us are grateful for. Not necessarily for. a fan, Humorous. just like... Wait, did you just say grateful? <laughs> I, I we're grateful you're not, because if you were a boxer, then we, you know, you wouldn't be the nice sound guy. You'd be bullying us all out of our fucking lunch money. Right? <laughs> Taking my lunch money and shit. <laughs> but, uh, we're gonna dive in on this one here, man. I think this is uh, interesting. My uh, my father's got some weird stuff. What are you looking for, John? Oh, I'm good. All right, This is where the uh, the historical end of this one comes in. And we found some weird weird shit. Uh, we're not prepared for some of the left hand turns here, but on uh, April sixth. 1893 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm. Local boy and local hero, Andy Bowen, looked over at the man in front of him. The man's name was Jack Burke, Texas Jack Burke, in fact, and the two of them were about to spend a night together uh, in a boxing ring. Um, not gay. Uh, the two <laughs> men entered the squared circle. Thank you for the clarification. They, uh, they would enter the squared circle and begin what has gone down in, on record as the longest recording boxing match in the Queensberry Rules era, considered pretty much of all time. Mm -hmm. um, the match went on for 110 three-minute rounds. The entire oh fight. Oh, my God. So we were saying five minutes of, your, of Kip and your boy Peter yeah. going at it? Yeah. These dudes fought for seven hours and 19 minutes. 
Seven hours, 19 minutes. That's that is, a full day's pay. Oh, yeah, my God. That's essentially uh, in the entire first season of Game of Thrones. If you were to do one, you know, if, if you watched uh, all the Star Wars movies in a row, mm-hmm. that's not as long as this fucking fight. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at uh, seven well, hours, mean, 19 minutes. talking about the three original Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Not well, the prequels. Quality clarification here. Right, right. Um, but uh, they fought for uh, seven and a half hours. Uh, the, the fight completely changed both men's lives forever. Uh, but that raised a lot of <laughs> because, questions. Because they both had CTE. <laughs> Pretty much. Man. Now, uh, we didn't know shit about that back then, but some, right. I mean, the, the stuff these guys did to themselves was insanity. But the uh, little uh, the asterisk on that fight is it's the longest fight under the Queensberry rules. So you've heard of Queensberry rules before? No, no, no. All right. Um, I've only heard it jokingly referred to on TV shows or anything like that, but it's always like uh, some doofy white guy putting up like the Dukes. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The one uh, fist right back by your jaw and the other one like – like jokingly far out, like the the memes of the guy with the mustache. Yeah, the guy yeah, looks yeah. like my dad, pretty no. much. He's about to fuck somebody. Yeah. Got to turn it into a handle. Yeah, like yeah. When any when any, when any gentlemen have right. a dispute, right, right, and they decided to go outside Settle and exchange fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was the fisticuffs, and then it was uh, uh, the Queensberry rules. That being said, Lawrence Patrick Burke, what the fuck are Queensberry rules? Well, the Queensberry rules was really a, they were trying to put some kind of a semblance to uh, rules and regs to. Uh, Street fighting. bashing each other's heads out. Yeah, street mm. fighting. Um, it really, the precursor to the whole uh, Marquis of Queensbury rules. Marquis, goes, good word. Yeah, right. Nice. We, go, we go back even further. I'm going to need a fucking dictionary. To yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And that's well, not just for con- record, Marquis of uh, Queensbury, that was a, a title people held. But it was always held by, I believe, the members of the, uh, the Douglas family. So uh. it's like a weird... Some weird thing for uh, the, the House of uh, uh, Commons type deal. Yeah, we're back into mm-hmm. uh, merry old England kind of a thing. So American boxing really got its start, really, or its roots were in English boxing. But uh, there was a guy, this goes all the way back to like 1719. There's a guy named James Figg who was the first bare-knuckle English champion. Hmm. He was declared the first champion. And we're going back to 1719 now. Uh, he was also a fencer. This guy, James Figg, he was also a fencer, and he was also a master at something called single stick, which was uh, uh, also Smoking known dirt. as cudgels that uh, you're basically taking. A, each guy's got a stick, and they're beating the shit out of one another with a mm. with a, a short staff, like a, a cane, if you will, caning, uh, mm-hmm. stick fighting. Now, a lot of this goes back. A lot of different parallels. A lot of this goes back to, uh, I mean, boxing having like a loose thing with uh, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, mm-hmm. but uh, the first ever uh, recorded boxing match in Britain takes place in 1681 when the Duke of Abelmar, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but whatever, our one listener in Manchester, fucking correct me, right? Um, so this dude, the like Duke of uh, yeah, yeah, the Duke of Abelmar, uh, he engineered and documented a fight. So the the first recorded boxing match in 1681 is a fight between his butler and his butcher. Nice. Right, so nice. No, not guys. him putting. Them, not, not him stepping up into the into just the ring. Dangling, just dangling. Right. Right. Just what? dangling their fucking future jobs in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, do well. Do well. Do well. We have to make budget cuts. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's so, like it's like in Batman when the Joker is like, "Hey boys, we've got out. one position." <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I look at it this way too because it's. Uh, I always pictured it'd be great if uh, we had um, Kahuna fight my Uber driver for the you know the right to record the podcast or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
At this point, by the way, boxing is considered a, a low-class sport, which is for ruffians and ne'er-do-wells. Not that we know anything about that, John. It, nothing yeah, this was this nothing was really not a uh, an upper echelon uh, high society yeah. kind of a thing. This well, was, even back uh, then, who wants to make a living getting punched in the head? They were yeah. barroom brawlers, right? Yeah. yeah. That, uh, but this guy James Fig, he comes up with this first set of rules, if you will, uh, and this all goes into the whole combat sports and all this kind of stuff. But you got to remember now too that we're talking, you know, seventeen nineteen. Uh, it's not too far away that uh, guys were still drawing swords and, and dueling it out. So this was kind of a, an upscale mm. from actually drawing swords and fighting with swords that now we're just going to settle things with uh, with our fists rather than swords kind of a thing. But anyhow, he holds this, uh, he holds this title of uh, the English champion from 1719 to 1730. So he had a pretty good, a pretty good run. You know, he's got 11 years uh, – uh, that he's working there. As and I bet you those guys were fighting all the time back then. Yeah. They weren't like taking all kinds <laughs> of... Training was fighting. Right. You know? yeah, there was you're no making season. your living. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. making your living out of... Uh, now, but it's also illegal. So, you know, yeah. whether you're calling it an exhibition match or whether you're calling it, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a regular title fight, that that's... It's a lot of gray areas there that uh, how many fights that these guys actually fight, whether it was an exhibition, but, you know, between you and I, we're going to call it an exhibition so the cops don't raid this thing, but we're going to pound the shit out of each other. Um, And then finally, uh, what became as, you know, Fig's kind of rules morphed into... Uh, a guy by the well that held on there for about a hundred years. His James Figgs's rules for for bare knuckle brawling, until um, a guy by the name of Jack Broughton comes along and he's the first person to really codify this set of rules in 1743. So we're we're making some we're Everybody making some else forward is just progress. Fucking shouting out right, the right, rules right, before right. a match. And don't hit me in the dick there. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but it's wild. Right, now below the um, yeah. below the waist shots. Now we start to get some some different uh, rules and regs that uh, you know uh, you can't have your second jumping in and you know taking over for me because if you're seeing me falter, that my second is going to come in and, and finish this thing. That there's just one guy. Against the one guy, you know, mano y mano kind of a back thing. Back to your Kip Warren uh, Pierre feud. <laughs> right, right. Oh, so there was tag team matches yeah. in the back of <laughs> the day? Well, it, it might have worked out that way. But anyhow, this guy, Jack Broughton, he's also now, um, he's working to codify this set of rules. And, you know, it morphs into uh, what became known as the London Prize Ring Rules. Mm. So we're getting all these different rules and regs. It seems that this guy, James Figg, who was the original uh, champion, uh, set up this whole amphitheater, this big fighting ring, and, uh, you know, it's drawing the crowd to come into his amphitheater. So he had his rules for this amphitheater. Figg dies, but this guy, Jack Broughton, was one of his... um, Stars on on uh-huh. the card, you know, for the go see Jack Bright. What did Fig die of? Any idea? Uh, I think just old age. He uh-huh. he managed to, uh, oh, to, wow. to live a ripe old. He didn't die in the ring, kind of a thing. Or S- smoking and getting popped in the head. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Defying all odds. That's right. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely defying the odds. But anyhow, uh, Brighton uh, Broughton is now uh, codifying this thing. Um, and he, Broughton worked for Fig, and then Fig dies, and 
Broughton takes over the business in 1734. He codifies this whole thing that if you're going to fight within this amphitheater, you've got to go by these particular rules. They, be, they morph into the London prize ring rules. And then finally in uh, 1867, so we're we're talking, you know, Civil War, Civil, era. Mm. American Civil yes. War era. Um, finally, the Marquis of uh, Queensbury rules come into effect, um, which are, which are. Well, well, well uh, I'm going to get into those in a second here because uh, the Marquis of Queensbury. That's just a weird fucking title to begin with. Uh, this dude, John Douglas, is the eighth Marquess of Queensbury. Now, the reason this dude was interesting, huge, huge sporting fan, everything like that. He liked. Uh, I, I, the early boxing stuff is so much like the early UFC stuff when you start uh-huh. looking at the history of it. But this dude, if you Google him, the Marcus of Queensbury, John uh, Douglas, six set of mutton chops, by the way. I mean, absolutely six set of Nice. And a, and a shaved head, too. But um, he now sponsored that set of rules that was uh, brought forth. That was the London prize fighting stuff originally. He sponsors this rules that have become popular. That becomes known as the Queensberry Rules, which is hilarious because he didn't actually write them. He just sponsored them, which, as Frederick Engels would later find out from his pal Karl Marx, uh, it's a good name to sell a product. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the guy who actually wrote the rules, the guy who actually penned them is this guy, John Chambers, who was a big-time sportsman. He was was a legit, you know, uh, uh, um, athlete, pro sports um, he rode, this guy Chambers, who actually wrote the uh, Queensbury Rules, rode for Cambridge, uh, founded InterVarsity Sports. Uh, he was a champion uh, boat race crews, and uh, he also... Regular was, one-trick pony. Yeah, he, he was uh. all, all about you know athleticism kind of a thing. There's a guy by the name of Matthew Webb, who was the first guy to swim the English Channel. Well, this guy Chambers was rowing right alongside rowing right alongside uh, Webb, just in case he got into trouble. Going uh. be the first to swim across the English uh. Channel, kind of a thing. So he was like his second. But this guy, this guy Chambers was legit. But he was the guy that actually penned the Queensbury Rules. But of course, you need a, a higher up in society. So, in these rules, are there, is there weight classes yet? Have, have weight classes been introduced? Or they wind up going into those eventually. Um, so, so right can, now, it's like the biggest monster. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's whatever, definitely yeah, sizing if you, people if you got up. A, Right. If you're a good lightweight, you're going to find another lightweight to go against. If okay. you're, you know, a bantamweight, but that classification really hasn't come out yet. It's just so, but, so, but potentially you could fight, you know, some yeah, you so could some have, big animal could just yeah, be you just don't run your mouth. Right, right, right. You could have Mon- <laughs> you could have Mongo from Blazing Saddles come in and you know, <laughs> punches out the ox. You know, yeah. nobody's going to get that reference. <laughs> be surprised, man. We got a lot of the shared universe people. They are pop culture fanatics. All right, uh, right. It's terrifying. Um, now, you ready for these uh, Marcus of Queensbury rules, John? Yes. You tell me what, which one of these you, you disobeyed first. Um, <laughs> number one, to be a fair stand-up boxing match, it should take place in a 24-foot ring or as near size as practical. So, all right, that's the first thing. You just want to have, like, an actual squared circle. Swinging room in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, rule number two, no wrestling or hugging allowed. Oh, yeah, and that's, so, yeah. Which you see routinely broken on every Showtime boxing event. Anyway, that's like their their rest hold when they, they yeah. go to the clinch. Up to now, um, you know, if there was a combination of uh, kicking, punching, wrestling, throwing the guy down, whatever. Oh, so it was, whatever so it was, it was kind of street fights. It was it was it was much more like yeah, brawling it, it was and a little more like UFC. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, nice. Absolutely. Yeah, the old Tank Abbott days. Um, right. Oh man. <laughs> And what? No wonder, like some Chinese guy, just sort of like some Chinese servant, and just walk in and 
like with some sort of karate or some sort of formal training and just kick the oh, shit what, out of these what's guys. Discipline? I think that it was also cool too is that uh, with the martial arts training that they were actually fascinated by Western boxing mm. too. So it's, it's we're enamored with uh, with that like you know Japanese martial arts. I mean the same way they were enamored with you just punch each other. That's fucking <laughs> it. right. Yeah, right. It's so simple. Why didn't we think of it? Uh, rule number three, by the way. This is where it gets interesting. This was a huge departure from the old rules. Uh, rule number three was the rounds were to be of three-minute duration uh, with one-minute rest time in between rounds. Uh, back then, in the old uh, school days, a round was considered when somebody was knocked down. Right. So if you and me are fighting and you land a crazy shot on me and I fall down, that's a round. Right. Okay. Then you know, I get back that's up. That's the end of the round. They were given a, you know, a period of time to regain your feet and come back to uh, scratch. In other words, come back to the center of the ring. Mm. Which is uh, unsettling. If you uh, couldn't answer the call, then you know, then it was, it was, you were done. Well, that falls into rule number four here. If either man falls through weakness or otherwise, he must get up unassisted. How many counts would you say? How, how long would you give him? The standing ten, right? Three. <laughs> you got to bounce back up. John's got shit to do. Um, <laughs> That's right. So it's a uh, ten-second uh, uh, is for him to be allowed to get back up. And while the uh, the other man, uh, after you score the knockdown, if you knock the other guy down, you had to go back to your corner. So that we see that in boxing still today. Uh-huh. Um, so he returns to his corner, and when the fall man is on his legs, the round is to be resumed and continued until the three minutes have expired. If one man fails to come to the scratch, get back onto his feet, within the 10 seconds, it shall be in the power of the referee to give his award in favor of the other man. Which would mean if you didn't answer the standing 10 count, the fight was over. So, right. Which we see a lot of that shit, man. Yeah, but what, what the problem, the reason that came into being is because under the old rules, if one boxer hit a knee... Yeah, that was that was considered a down, and a lot of guys would would you know take a, a mild shot and then faint going down and hit a knee to get the uh, you know the, the ten second count to kind of regain themselves before uh-huh. they would go back and start swinging again. It, uh, they would use it too, like a, like a mound visit in baseball. Yeah, you know, they want to stretch. So then, if you're doing it in Yankee Stadium and you're the Red Sox, you're getting booed. <laughs> so. so this one, so this one is is to not protect the boxer. It's to, to keep the, the flow of the fight. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, right, so. keep the fight going. Yeah, because yeah. I assumed all these rules are like to protect the boxer because it was so animalistic, but this one's like, all right, listen, Pansy, no more of that. <laughs> it's weird because we, we put rules, and we did an earlier episode on the electric chair, which was created because they thought it was going to be more humane than public hangings. Yeah. And uh, then you actually are just like, oh, no, but it's just a more sophisticated way of being barbarians. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So. A different way of killing somebody. But uh, now, interesting, we just watched, because um, uh, I know your, your, uh, your buddy yeah, Andy, he posted the Instagram video of uh, when Tyson uh, Fury, yeah, he got back up after Deontay Wilder just unloaded on him. I, right. I played the clip for my dad uh, leading up to the show. and uh, He ain't getting up. You know I mean, when you saw him go down, he was saying, <laughs> And then he ain't he's up, up, he answers the 10 count. Now, what uh, we noticed, though, is that he has to, uh, as my father pointed out, the referee has to indicate with his fingers what number the count is on. Mm. Now, what, what's the reason why you have to have the visual aspect of that, LP? Well, there was a guy back in the day, uh, he was, his nickname was Def Burke because the guy actually was Def, the last name Burke. Oh, any relation to you guys? Yeah. It's a, <laughs> well, it, sounds, it sounds like a retard, so probably. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but he, he was known as Def Burke. Uh, he was a professional f- fighter. You know, he made his living by knocking people down, uh-huh. and uh, he was or getting back up. Depending yeah, on how you're yeah, that's right, right. <laughs> he was scheduled for this big fight, and, and the referee had already been uh, appointed to this fight, and he was concerned that, you know, with this mandatory ten count, 
that um, Def Burke isn't going to be here and, you know, one, two, three. So then he said, that, you know, he's going to actually wave his hands in front of the guy so he can visually see the count going on. Mm. And that was the first time that that was actually originator rather than just the, the standing 10 That's also count good just verbally. if you get your bell rung. Because, yeah. you know, it takes it takes your senses a second to sort of, like, realign. You Absol- know? Absolutely. Like, but, what's I mean, happening now? Okay, right. there that, we go. That first happened back in the 1800s, and now that that still remains in the fight game today. That, hmm. you know, when you watch the, the ref counting somebody out, um, he's waving his arm in front of the guy's face at the same time. So This is good for me because like, I feel it's informative. Because I think you guys probably thought I knew more about um, <laughs> <laughs> structured fighting like boxing because of this podcast. I know about getting drunk, filling my cheeks up with beer, spitting in somebody's face, and then punching them in the face immediately. I don't want you feeling <laughs> right. like well, we're, uh, well, the beer's still in their eyes. You're <laughs> going in for the first shot. I don't want That's you feeling it. like we're being exploitative of your past here, John. <laughs> when, you, when you hear how close to a athlete you would have been a century ago yeah. <laughs> it gets uh, wild on that shit man you would have been high on the card for sure oh, I, listen I, I am sure that I would have mauled uh, 90% of these boxers from the 1800s <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the other because there's a couple really big personalities that we're going to cover later and uh, how tall are you just for the record 6'2 6'2 copy uh, Kahuna you're 6'6 six. 6'2 six, six, okay copy and uh LP. Height? Uh, I'll, I'll call it at 6'1". Six, 6'1". One. Six, one. Copy. Mm. All right. It's a room full of tall guys here. I'm 5'8". Uh, <laughs> that being said, uh, that'll come into play later here. Now, number five of the Queensberry Rules. A man hanging on the ropes in a helpless state with its, his toes off the ground shall be considered down. So if you can get the guy to leave, you know, his feet leave the mat, then mm. you're, uh, that, that counts as a down. Rule number six. No seconds or uh, other persons are allowed in the ring during – so no gang fighting, no tag team, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 no, no Conor McGregor. That's, oh, yeah, that's made I, I made him watch that too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, that was very typical that you know, if, if your man was not doing well yeah. and you got a lot of money bet on, on the outcome of this fight, well, then riots were, would take place that you know they would come in and, and just – uh, storm the ring and pull to your guy out and stop the fight. Mm. And then, well, who won? Well, nobody won. Right, right, you right. Know, and all bets are off at that point. People think that the Philadelphia Eagles fans are trash, but actually they're just honoring the long heritage <laughs> of gang fighting from right. uh, storming the field. And, yeah. uh, rule number seven, should the contest be stopped? This one's important here. Yeah. Um, should the contest be stopped by any unavoidable interference, the referee to name the time and place as soon as possible for the finishing of the contest. The match must be won or, and or lost unless the backers of both men agree to draw the stakes. There has to be a winner. So if you have a no uh, contest, you have to figure out how you're going to find a way to end the contest. Or if the fight stops because the cops raided the place or whatever. Cops raided. We're, we're still in a lot of uh, illegal. Well, you're in a situation that you explained first time. The cops came and broke it up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, who won? Well, you know. Right. It all depends on who you're asking who won that first round, if you will, but then they had to settle it later on. It's uh, Now, rule number eight, John, definitely, you're not going to be familiar with this one from uh, your past. The gloves are to be fair-sized boxing gloves of yeah. the best quality and new. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and assume you didn't have that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this... this that, yeah, I, I, I did wreck a couple of new shirts one time. <laughs> <laughs> I came out of a blackout and a, a bouncer headbutted me and broke my nose and I bled all over a new shirt. The way to get blood out of a new shirt is to put it in a tub of cold water immediately, and it just comes right out. There you go. Oh, shit. All right. We're learning stuff. Helpful hints from Halloween. Me, too. (laughs) 
yeah, we'll do. We'll find some homeless people on the way home. We'll, we'll rough them up a little bit, and we'll yeah. put that theory to test. <laughs> well, well, how are you going to get the how are you going to get the the water, the bathtub, and that works for blood, not fucking coffee and shit. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Uh, rule number Wait, that, eight. That whole glove thing, no, no, too, Kev. That's just the first time that gloves are coming into the boxing scene because mm. prior to this it was all bare-knuckle bare stuff. Yeah. Mm. Bare-knuckle stuff. And different, you know, that's going to develop a whole new technique. There was, back in the bare-knuckle days, previous to the Marquise of uh, Queensbury rules, there Marquise. was something, there was a technique called the Irish stand-down that uh, <laughs> this crowd might, uh, might find <laughs> appreciative here. The Irish stand-down, is, was a type of traditional bare-knuckle fighting where the aspect of maneuvering around the ring, that's removed. You're just going to stand toe-to-toe. Oh, I like leaving, that. Only, only uh, leaving Alive only and the, well in hockey fights. Uh, yes, right, right, right. You're just so. standing face-to-face, man-to-man, and, and you're punching it out. So it's more... Uh, it's less of a nuanced aspects of punching and taking punches than it is actually uh, a form of combat. Um, it was real popular... Um, in the United States in the late 19th century uh, and was eclipsed uh, in the Irish community fist by bare knuckle boxing and later well, if you think about it though like the best fights are when people are just going toe to toe throwing haymakers or yep. at least the uh, best fights that you want right. to see it's, yeah. it's all the Irish stand down uh, you know yeah right. it's uh, Arturo Gatti Mickey Ward mm-hmm. um, some of the early Ricky Hatton fights I mean uh Julio Cesar Chavez. These were guys. I mean, there's a lot of people that if you got into. A, that's why everybody's always so critical of Floyd Mayweather because he never let you get into that big war that you right because right, he was just right. too sound of a defensive boxer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's fifty and zero, but it's like fifty of the boringest matches it's, you'll ever get to yeah, see. I was gonna say it's, it's a, like it's like when the Devils won the cup and they were always playing that trap defense. Mm-hmm. You're just like, Ugh. which sucks. I'm a Devils fan, but I had to admit, I, even I couldn't watch some of that. Yeah, it uh, ruined the game. It's a, <laughs> it's a. They were too smart on that one, man. But now, like you said, LP gloves have come into uh, the, uh, the the circumstance which is good here. Um, now, uh, rule number nine is that should a glove burst or come off, it must be replaced but to the referee's satisfaction. So that means the ref has to take a look at all. So I forget who it was. Um, I can't remember if it was a boxer or a uh, – uh, I think it was a boxer that they had realized was uh, – I think it was Juan Manuel Marquez. Um, that wh- Whoever he was fighting, the guy who was wrapping his hands, they put some sort of a weird compound on his hands that in the wraps before he went into the gloves – it uh, solidified like a concrete. Uh, it was almost like coming uh, in with a chemical yeah, made fucking cement, a yeah. epoxy that's going to mm-hmm. harden while he's boxing. Which uh, would, that's why it's important because yeah. the referee is the one who caught that, and they don't know how many other times he was able to do that and get away with it. Sure, so right. Sure. That's another uh, modern uh, uh, use of the the rules of this Marcus of Queensberry. Speaking of gloves, somebody was uh, wearing a metal plated glove. And hit me in the nose and broke my nose. Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. It's looking good, though. I mean, you're nice and straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're way more handsome than that. You're not off to the side. <laughs> there. It's not hanging. Yeah. So For those that can't see John, there. John's an aesthetically pleasing man. Okay, so. <laughs> but uh, now rule number uh, 10 here, a man on one knee is considered down, and if struck, is entitled to the stake. So... A man goes down on one knee. He's uh, down. You hit him. You can't. You can't punch him again. Right. So, so it's prior to this. There's nobody's winning on points. It's you're getting knocked. No, no. Down. This is not points. This is right. Knock him down, or he can't answer. He can't come back to scratch. In other okay. words, okay. It was almost a, a tap out. Ring. Yeah. Tap so it out wasn't. Or a, so at one point it wasn't. An, oh, a tap out or a knockout. Yeah, so you, at one point, when they introduce the 15 round, that's when you start getting into points, right? When they. Have to close it. Yes, and yes. that's uh, right. Olympic-style boxing, which came into uh, in 1904, I believe, was when they really started to try to make the sport a little bit more respectable. This is the early 
Like mm-hmm. I said, the, the Tank Abbott um, days of the UFC here for, yeah. uh, for early boxing. Now, uh, number uh, 11 here, which I thought was interesting. And by the way, rule number 10 is uh, when we talk about taking a knee. When you see a fighter take a knee sometimes, they will, even though they're not, they're, they're hurt, they can probably get back up at the three, they use the rest of the 10 count to catch their breath a little. Right. Because Mickey Ward, who Mark Wahlberg played in the movie The Fighter, and I, I read his book Irish Thunder that was phenomenal, um, when he would hit a body shot on certain guys, um, they would have to take the entire 10 seconds to try to recover because a body shot's almost more devastating than a headshot. Right. Um, but uh, that being said, rule number 11 here, no shoes or boots with spikes or sprigs, in quotes, wire nails, are to be allowed. So mm. you, can't, you can't have brass knuckles for feet. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't right. come in there with dirty, rusty nails to fuck up a dude's shins. Or, or spikes to stomp on somebody's toes. Yeah, because toes. again, prior, prior to this, I mean, kicking and, and wrestling moves and throwing the guy to the, yeah. to the ground and everything else, that was all good. That was all fair game. Mm. And even the boxer's shoes would have to be inspected that they, the, 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 the toe wasn't come to a point like a cowboy boot kind of a thing that when you're kicking the guy you're, right. you're kicking him with a weapon you know right. are you wearing Jimmy Choo's in the ring right now? giving him new assholes that's right <laughs> and uh, rule number 12 here the final rule of the Marcus of Queensbury rules the contest in all other respects is to be governed by what my father brought up earlier the aforementioned London prize ring rules mm. so this is the revised version of that now, uh, as we said, uh, Mr. Douglas, the eighth Marcus of Queensbury, is fondly remembered for his contributions to the sport of boxing, less fondly remembered for this weird fucking caveat. <laughs> yeah, there's a, here's a tie-in for you. Uh, so we've covered some famous writers on the show before, and uh, now we're covering uh, the boxing end of it. So Marcus of Queensbury, uh, he liked to duke it out. He was a, a fan of boxing and having a, an opponent you could confront or whatever. But his biggest opponent was Oscar Wilde. Okay. Oh, Wow. So he had a feud with Oscar Wilde. He is responsible for having Oscar Wilde sent to two years hard labor that pretty much ruined Oscar Wilde's life, who was the most famous writer uh, alive at the time. Um, but he got into a feud with him that pretty much ruined Oscar Wilde's life. Oscar Wilde would, uh, would die um, in uh, France almost penniless, right? Uh-huh. And the reason they got into a feud was because uh, you're going to think I'm being crude here. Uh, no, we already know that you Oscar Wilde wouldn't stop fucking the Marcus of Queensberry's son, Alfred. You know what? Totally understand that shit. <laughs> I was like, you ruined the guy's life. You ruined the guy's life. You ruined the fucking guy's life. And I was like, man, this really he sounds like a piece of shit. But he's like, stop fucking my son. Man. I mean, I don't know how old this kid is. Love is love. I mean, it's, that's the other thing. It's like, but were they just like two star-struck lovers? Is this like Romeo and Romeo? <laughs> But it's like now I want to know more about that. Like why? Or was it? It's like, dude, my fucking fifth. Can you just let my son graduate high school? You <laughs> yeah. piece of shit. It was. Uh, it was a Mrs. Robinson moment, kind of a thing. I think. But, uh, <laughs> my favorite part of the podcast, by the way, is when Kahuna, who, um, oh. who we woke up early, so he's missing his Saturday morning cartoons. Oh. Um, Kahuna oh, looked fuck up. Fuck off. <laughs> Kahuna looks up and just goes, "Butt fucking." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, that was their feud um, between the two of them because uh, his son Alfred uh, was carrying on a homosexual relationship with Oscar Wilde, who uh, he's like a perfect example of hubris. People study him in college because hubris is the pride, the excessive pride that leads to a downfall. Uh. So for Oscar Wilde, um, he was the most famous author of the day. I mean, people still study his works. Fantastic, like, amazing dude. Yeah. Um, but he thought he was a big enough celebrity that he could Elton John this shit. And yeah, 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 we yeah. weren't ready for that just yet. Yeah, so, dude, pick another fucking hole, would uh, you? <laughs> I mean, 
you, you, I'm sure you can get the pick of your litter, but you're right. Yeah, it's just, he could have, man. But old, uh, so that was the feud between him and uh, the Marks Queen, which I'll, I'll go into the the, the, the that's recap. That's a whole movie. Is there a movie on that? They, uh, there isn't. Tom Wilkinson plays the uh, the Marcus of Queensberry. Nice. Um, who, uh, you know, pretty fantastic actor on that one. Uh, now, uh, boxing was largely a demonized sport around the time, but it started to pick up support from, and I think you're going to love this, John, a very peculiar ally. Uh, started to pick up support for boxing, or as it was known, pugilism. The queen. Um, very close. It was uh, <laughs> um, a philosophical movement. Uh, no, it started in England and traveled over to the U.S. known as masculine Christianity. Hmm. You ever heard of this? No. Right, Tell uh, me more. Essentially, it's Tim Tebow. Okay, Tim uh. Tebow would be an example. Jeremy Lin from the Knicks is another guy who's an example of that stuff. Or whenever you see um, uh, an athlete that's always, uh, you know, uh, with talking about their faith first and stuff like right. that. You know, so a lot of the in the NFL they have a lot of the religious tattoos, all that other so shit. Every black athlete in the NFL, yeah, pretty much. It's a, <laughs> it's a, um, now masculine Christianity was and is the belief that physical fitness, exercise, and manliness were an important part of a good Christian man's life. The main principle, Any man, really. exactly. Um, um, the main principle being that a man's body ought to be made strong in order to carry out patriotic duties, participate in teamwork, the betterment, self-betterment through sport and teamwork, and self-sacrifice in order to protect the weak and to advance righteous causes. So we talk about this idea of uh, toxic masculinity that you yeah. hear about in the blogs. Every, it was going on back then, too. The people hated this. Oh, they hated it. <laughs> so because people flocked to ma- uh, masculine uh, uh, Christianity because they, they could get on board with this shit. I mean, right. why, why wouldn't you want to do that? That sounds like a great way to right. live. You're like, okay, I'm going to get strong so I can help other people and we're going to do great things and I'm, you know, glory to God, all that other shit. And I mean, listen, whatever gets you there, though, as far as, like, motives. Yeah. You know, it's right. like if you're going to be in shape and you want to get strong, and you, I mean, it's a little bit of a fucking an ego jerk off to be like, so that I can help other people. It's, you know, it's to bang chicks, right? But <laughs> Yes. But it's like, but 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 those are the same... Those are the same motives for um, like a lot of these self-help gurus. They're like, "This, don't you want to make a whole bunch of money in this lifetime <laughs> so you can give some away and help people who are starving?" And yes, you're like, you're "Oh right, yeah, right, you're right. right. I can totally cut somebody's throat in business so that I can help some, so that I can then so you know, I can give ten percent away. Yeah, and ten percent would fortunes. be a lot. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. The gorilla get mindset guy was that way. Yeah, yeah. and get you know, get a school bus and feed the home and homeless people on Thanksgiving. But meanwhile, right. you know, you're just fucking the other three hundred sixty-four <laughs> days. You're closing a factory <laughs> job somewhere right. and shipping the jobs off to China. Right? Well, it was uh, Denzel Washington in um, when he was playing the uh, the heroin dealer uh, in uh, New York and New Jersey. It was uh, it, all they saw every year was that he was giving out free turkeys on Thanksgiving. Like, what a great guy, man! It's like, oh. He also had the most pure heroin that ruined <laughs> the yeah, inner yeah. city black communities. But forever. that's it. That's it. Um, but I don't. I still. Um, I don't know. What's you know, whatever gets you there. You know? I agree with you, man. It was uh, now the thing is too is that the the people who were one of the other caveats of masculine Christianity was uh, the uh, hatred or disdain. For things that were considered un-English, obviously that being from the the, the, the British school of thought, but fucking um, very close, uh, <laughs> and uh, the hatred of everything that's <laughs> French, but fucking yeah. French. <laughs> Take that across the water. Yeah, put a little one of those. Right. Uh, you just say that and bring that to their colonies. The conversation well, like the gears just fuck yeah. up for a couple of seconds. <laughs> There's a reason Oscar Wilde went there after he got out of jail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. It wasn't for the baguettes. <laughs> we, don't, uh, we don't have any uh, listeners in France, so. I'm um, I hope we do now. But uh, oh, it would be great. Um, but uh, so that was the other thing that uh, they they dis- had a disdain for everything uh, effeminate. Now, one of the weird stories I heard was that uh, a uh, it was a priest in England um, found out from another member of the clergy 
that uh, that member of the clergy. So these two priests are talking. That's not the start of a joke. Um, right, right, right. But uh, two priests are talking. The one priest says that, uh, oh, recently I, I said grace at dinner, um, but I m- managed to avoid mentioning Jesus in the grace because I didn't want to offend uh, one of our Jewish dinner guests. And oh. the other guy got up. So that's political correctness right yeah. there. Rooting itself all that. So we, people always think that like the, the progressive this ideas is that new, well, we just invented new, it. Right. We're the first ones who got it right. You right. know what I mean? They're, we're, everyone else is bad. We're the first ones who are actually pure and self-righteous and blah, 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 whatever. But um, so when he found out that the one priest excluded uh, the mention of Christ in his uh, you know grace for the dinner, the other clergyman beat the shit out of him with a stick. <laughs> nice. And a bystander said, oh, that's what you get for this masculine Christianity. So, <laughs> so toxic masculinity had a religious root back in the day here. Yeah, um, and it was also the, the times, too, we're, we're talking the, the late 1800s that the whole uh, high society kind of a thing and chivalry and everything else was having a resurgence and everything else. But there was a another side of the coin was saying that, well, well we're getting a little too civilized because we're we're really getting getting soft and nobody's really you know so we got to develop ourselves physically and for the righteous and for you know to uh, help the the downtrodden let me just say this is so interesting because you guys have like taken the scope of history and are like taking it and like illuminating the minutia but it's so interesting to see it's like you think of history you always think of like world wars yep and that's what always seems to get like you know, sort of brought out, but this is really interesting. Like, just sort of talk, finding out where political correctness was even back then. Like, it's true. We all think that we that we're fucking on the cusp of this stuff it's, and we're inventing it. <laughs> right, right, right. Dude, it's just it's right. all repeating it's just, itself has, over and over and over. Had it not been know? for my generation, it would have been uh, totally screwed. Right. Well, yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, we're talking. He's talking specifically about social no, security saying, and the right, environment. Or right, right now, I don't mean mine, but I mean modern day. Oh, if right, it was right. not been for modern day, what's going on presently? Right. Right now in the news today, we would have been totally screwed if we continued on. Well, they've been they've been talking about this bullshit since time immortal. You know, mm. that, um, well, we started going into the old political stuff too because people talk about today's political climate being the most vicious. It's it's, ever, it's always been vicious. By the way, that's like a decent thing to do. Like you know, you, you don't want to offend a dinner guest, so you just yeah, try just and do something yeah. a little bit. I mean, very simple. I mean, also if you're the dinner guest, maybe don't take offense if you're in somebody's house and they do fucking mention that's Jesus. Right, right. At the same time, it's right, like right. it's the whole Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas thing. The the you know? war on Christmas. There you go, yeah. brother. Jesus. It's like, hey, you know, why why do you got to force anything down anybody's throat? Why can't everybody just be fucking civil? Right? You know, uh, a guy who's interesting here. We we've talked about him on past episodes before. You don't realize how important of a president he really was. But uh, a uh, a certain man was raised in a masculine Christian household uh, by the name of Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. And uh, regular listeners of the show will know from those past episodes, uh, don't fuck with TR. All right? Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt, everybody He's, who's ever gone up against him lost. Badass to the bone. So, Physically? Um, well, he was actually a pugilist. So mm. uh, he actually also had um, instruction for, and boxing lessons for him and his son at the White House during his presidency. Yeah, it even, oh, goes, it awesome. even goes before that, Kev, that uh, TR... We um, went to Harvard. He boxed for the Harvard, uh, you know, the collegiate team kind of a thing. Oh, wow. Fought uh, even as a young man in New York City. Um, Isn't that crazy, by the way, that if uh, if he had just been – if he'd gone to Harvard maybe a century later, he would have just been a, a writer for The Simpsons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was uh, – his household growing up was, was definitely part of that whole um, – Christian uh, athleticism type of thing that, uh, you know, there was a feeling of the time that white American men were the best. 
were becoming increasingly oh, sorry. effeminate sorry. and over-civilized. So uh-huh. part of this whole boxing scheme was, uh, he was all about that. And Damn, it really does just keep on repeating. Cyclical, right. right. And, and we've replaced boxing now with jiu-jitsu. Everybody's right. into jiu-jitsu. So it's just the, the, right. the what's and then the... There's like, and then there's, you know, and there's the, the hypocrisy of everybody, you know, saying that white men are too masculine. But meanwhile, all these fucking... Fake feminist wangs, or are lining up to watch Conor McGregor fight somebody, or you know, or go to an Avengers movie so they can all pretend they're the Hulk with half chubs. Right. It's half the battle with that stuff. Man. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, and Tr, even while he was governor of New York, um, he was uh, he was sparring with people uh, as governor of New York when he was the uh, New York City Police Commissioner. He was duking it out in City Hall with uh, some of the other uh, police recruits, kind of a thing, and that carried on even in, into the into his White House days. That he was still um, sparring. As Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine people must be like, "Listen, this is the president." Yep. Right. Take your foot off the gas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try and knock yeah, out the president. I mean, this, yeah, as Have you ever heard of Oscar Wilde? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. T R is already a, a you know a war hero from the Spanish American War, and it's one of the reasons why he got into the presidency. I mean, they they made him vice president to start with, but then won you know won the reelection as president. So he's, he's sparring with people now. A lot of this was done on the down low on the QT because, you know, it really didn't want to become a media spectacle that mm. who's who's the latest guy. But there was a lot of uh, professional fighters that were invited to the White House and was, was sparring with TR. We're getting very close to President Wesley Snipes in the field. It's <laughs> just, just me calling it here. Yeah, as a matter of story. fact, even while he was president, uh, TR was, was uh, sparring with one of the uh, Army guys. And it was only like maybe four or five people that really knew that this was going on. So this was a, a closed secret. But uh, TR took one that actually dislocated his left retina. He was blind in one eye. And wow. They didn't know about it for like 10 years before. Holy shit, I didn't even know yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, he, he took a shot. And, it's so funny. You're, and like then you said, the doctors at that point said, "Tr, that's it. No more. I mean, you're already you know, you're you're dislocated." Or <laughs> I like you, know. you think that they were calling him Tr. <laughs> hey, Tr, come on. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know that was a closely guarded secret that he was blind in his left eye from blind in his taking left a eye, shot in fighting the these guys just for the sake of fighting. Like and you said, it, right. like he felt like he wouldn't. You know, just this to wasn't winning him any. Yeah, just, right, just he physically to do fit because it. it was a, a, a great workout. Well. Phys- you can be physically fit and, and hit a heavy bag three times a week. To go in there and, fi- and fight a guy is, yeah, you know, it's a whole because different you level. love fighting and yeah. you, there's something you're trying to prove to yourself still right. over and over and over again. Duking, right. baby. Duking. Now, uh, not for nothing, if you, you talk about wanting to prove yourself here, uh, one interesting thing. I always go back to um, that great Chris Rock bit that he had where he pretty much says, and I'm, I'm not going to do his bit, but um, it was that uh, – the worse America is to you as an immigrant group, like your ethnic group or whatever, mm-hmm. the harder that um, America is on you, the better your people get at boxing. That's true. So it was the best boxers are black, Irish, and Mexican. And then also my father wanted to throw in the uh, the, the Jews on that one too because a lot of the Jewish boxers we covered in another episode would take on an Irish last name to try to be more appealing as a box office drug because yeah. the Irish love fighting so right. much. Meanwhile, they get in the ring with that big old shark fin. That's a- <laughs> 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 and they're like, eh, uh, I don't know. This or where Aurora get this beak? <laughs> uh, that was beautiful. Um, 
but not for nothing, it, the, it's such a true thing what Chris Rock was saying because boxing in America was true. A, a huge amount of popularity in mostly urban areas right. uh, like New York, Boston, and New Orleans, be, three of the big ones well, right take a, Right. Mostly in urban even now, you look at the best boxers in the world. Mm-hmm. It's Mexicans, Black Americans, and if you get a, a good white boxer, he's usually from Europe or Russia because those are where like a majority of like the really poor white people like. The, there's no upward mobility in those in those countries because right. the Baltics, yeah, the, the Klitschko, right. yeah. and all that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's just it's like it's shit. That's why, um, and, and it's always uh, people from poor backgrounds too. This isn't a rich kid's sport. No, because you know I mean? no rich, because no parent in their right mind would allow them to do it. Exactly. Right, you know? But if that's your way out, if that's the only way of yeah. earning a living, yep. is you know side bets on a on a duking it out in the, in the back room of the bar. I mean, it's so go, go for it, Patty. <laughs> it's yeah. also popular with the urban areas because the, those men who were eager to prove their masculinity, but they didn't have the American frontier experience of being able to prove their masculinity by hunting bears or fight, being an right. Indian fighter. There you go. So those were like the two. You couldn't. Like if you wanted to be Davy Crockett, like in the, the the dime store novels, where you know Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, all that other stuff. Yep. You couldn't do it. You had to just go fight some dude, and that was the way that they would settle a lot of their scores here. But sports need superstars to grow. All right, the UFC never would have just taken off with just Tank Abbott. You had to have names like Randy Couture, Tito Ortiz, Chuck yep. Liddell, uh, Matt Hughes to a certain extent, the Gracie family. You had to have people that this pedigree of fighters here. Um, I'm going to say Ken Shamrock. We, uh, by the way, we uh, interviewed him on episode six. No shit. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know you got Shamrock. Man. Yeah. Again, listen to fight stories, guys. Check it out, man. It's good <laughs> yeah. shit over there. Um, now, not for nothing, nobody was larger in life in early boxing than a man by the name of John L. Sullivan. Uh, Lawrence Patrick Burke, who the fuck is John L. Sullivan? Uh, John L. Sullivan, uh, guess what? He was Irish with a last name like Sullivan. Uh, mm. He was uh, <laughs> of Irish immigrant uh, parents. Uh, his parents came over um, after escaping the uh, Irish potato famine and the and the old sod, if you will. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's, a lar- <laughs> he's a larger-than-life guy, um, a Boston Southie. So he's coming from uh, that socioeconomic upbringing, if you will, oh, yeah. that uh, the only way out is to uh, you know, knock somebody down. And, uh-huh. uh, he, he's, he's good at it. He's a big guy. Um, he's hard-hitting. He's a, he's a hard-drinking uh, guy that's um, ushered in the sport. The Babe Ruth of boxing. Exactly, and there's a lot of parallels drawn to uh, Sullivan and, and Babe Ruth. Actually, and the two of them. They crossed paths uh, later, oh, wow. later in life. But, uh, um, you know, he's coming from the, the outlawed bare-knuckle days because he's, he's really the guy that transgressions from the bare-knuckle brawler um, into the Marcus of Queensbury rules into the, mm. the gloved era, if you will, that uh, instead of being the bare-knuckle brawler, he's, he's not only putting on the, on the, uh, on the gloves. But that he, must have been such a relief but, <laughs> for those guys uh, to be like, oh, this ain't so bad. That's right. <laughs> right. right. I right. Like I mean, Busting your hands. But, uh, you know, he, he holds titles on both sides, from the bare-knuckle days to, uh-huh. the, to the glove days. But he's also the first modern... Uh, day countries like superstar. Mm. He's the first sports guy to earn a million dollars. Oh wow! Yeah. And what year is this? Uh, Eighteen eighty-two. Oh wow! So so you post a million dollars in eighteen eighty-two. You're oh yeah. <laughs> you're right up there. You know you're not exactly John D. Rockefeller what a hero or, or would J.P. Have been Morgan, too. but uh, yeah. You're certainly making a whole lot more than. But the, you're eating dinner with them. Than the boys back <laughs> home. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, sure. you're invited to yeah. their table, right? Actually, yeah, you're getting invited to 
uh, to, to the White House. Teddy Roosevelt is going to invite you to the White House, and uh, there was some um, indication that uh, you know T.R. And, and Sullivan in his later years were were taking lessons from one another, if you will. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and not for nothing. also. I want to actually go read a book out. on Teddy Roosevelt now. Uh, he's, uh, he's my favorite <laughs> to read about. Yeah, yeah. He, he's insane. absolutely the best. T.R. is like you don't fuck with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. I mean, it's just whatever it is. He's taking you on, and uh, he's coming out on top. First <laughs> Christmas tree at the White House. I mean, TR's going to be his own episode one day here down the road. Yeah. Um, Two episodes. On <laughs> that episode, we would change the title to American Badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have to <laughs> on that one. Well, um, I just wanted to say about this. It's so funny because you guys get, like, a bunch of no-name comics in here to talk about American <laughs> Losers. It's like it's almost as though you guys are um, recording episodes with future people you would focus on like oh remember this loser that we had five years ago <laughs> you're documenting losers it's a yeah that's why ken krantz wants on so bad no, it makes sense all right that's <laughs> so that's why they have me on the show now. <laughs> now uh not for nothing john l sullivan as you were saying lp a lot of interesting stuff there so he went on because he was famous he had white house visits um now what was the kill rain fight we talked about that a little all right bit. well John L is uh, he's like this superstar. He again, he's the first guy to draw a million dollars. He's like the Irish American hero. Twenty years uh, after the Civil War, too, mind you. Yeah, like less than twenty in a lot of ways. So the immigrant waves that are coming off the boat and signing up for the Union Army the day they arrive in America to go fight for your new country that you just got to. Uh, uh, twenty years later, now uh, the biggest star in America is uh, you know of Irish descent. Right. Right. And uh, um, not for, he was from Boston too. There was the yeah. He was known as the uh, the Boston Strong Boys. I mean, he's uh, uh, he's he's getting some hometown uh, sure. rep and everything else. That uh, uh, he he is he's legit. He's the real deal. Actually, the the uh, 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 a sl- uh, not a slang expression, but just a, a current catchphrase of the time is to shake the hand that shook the hand of John L. Sullivan. Like if you right. had opportunity to shake John L. Sullivan's hand, yeah. you would go around and like shake the hand that shook the hand of uh, John L. Sullivan. Like, <laughs> it was I'm the, hot shit yeah. because I shook this guy's hand. You it know? was the uh, smell my fingers of the day. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, he he is he's big time. Um, but you were asking about. Um, the Kilrain fight. The yes. Kilrain fight. The Kilrain fight. He goes against a guy by the name of Kilrain that uh, is really like a game changer. And this is again, this we're in this time period where we're going from bare knuckles to gloves, and from gloves back to bare knuckles. So there's a lot of intermix back and forth. But um, uh, the Kilrain fight is considered to be the turning point in boxing history. This this was really big because it was the last. It was. Um, the last uh, world title bout fight under the London prize rules, the old rules. The last we rule went, of the Marcus of Queensbury. Uh, uh, oh, wow. and, and also going into the Marcus of Queensbury. So it was the last bare-knuckle heavyweight title bout was when he went against this guy. Jesus Kilrain. Christ. So, uh, that, you know, this is for all the marbles kind of a thing. Yeah. So you've got this superstar going against this up-and-comer. And John L. was more of a old-school, you know, Toe to toe, let's let's duke it out. Yeah. The Irish stand down, as right? The, the Irish, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Irish stand down. Probably just a fucking cement head with, hammer, <laughs> with hammers for fists. Right, right, you right. Know? You could go at him with a yeah. with a sledgehammer and uh, yeah. Really. Uh, oh, I'm glad you didn't hurt me with oh, that. In another episode of Fight Stories, we talk about a guy that was beaten with a hammer and 
a, a guy, a friend of mine who's now dead, who uh, walked it off. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to fight stories, guys. Check it out. I'm telling you, crossover promotion, baby. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, but uh, this this fight, again, it was the last bare-knuckle heavyweight title bout, but it was the first sporting events in United States history that took national media attention. So, I mean, people across the nation are now like, well, you can't, right. this you is the can't first tune in. You can't tune in yet, but, but you're, you know, listening. You're, you're, you're sending newspaper reporters from across okay, the nation okay. I thought maybe it was to, radio. To, cover, to cover the fight. No, we're, we're still even before, mm. uh, before radio, but, you know. Media coverage is is huge. This is the biggest thing. Super Bowl would be a good analogy. Yeah, well, there were some famous people that interviewed him too, uh, uh, leading up to the fights and then covering his training period because his trainer was Muldoon, correct? Uh, yeah, his trainer was was Muldoon, and uh, there was a lot of people that uh, you know he had John L. I mean, because he, because of the notoriety of this guy, uh, he's huge. But there is a, a journalist, um, a female journalist, which was kind of a little out of the ordinary for sure for the times as well but a journalist Nellie Bly was the first female. she was quite good looking too yeah, so she was, this is the Aaron Andrews of her day right mm, so. or the the girl that Favre sent the dick pic to I can't remember her name <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, this journalist Nellie Bly was the first female journalist to interview John L. Sullivan so now he's in training all of these names ring bells yeah you know yeah well she's now covering his training period which was a little, a little out of the ordinary too. But uh, he squeaked. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's in training for this, you know, the fight of his life for this championship bout kind of a thing. And um, this female journalist Nellie Bly goes to interview him, and Sullivan later confesses to uh, to the intrepid reporter, "I have given you more than I have ever given any reporter in my life." Nellie Bly is this 19th century preeminent investigative journalist who had gone undercover to probe everything from police misconduct to baby buying. Well, anyhow, she visited she visits Sullivan in his upstate uh, training camp. I think it was... Uh, uh, Belfast, New Bel- York. Yeah, Belfast, New York. I knew it had an Irish connection in there somewhere. But anyhow, Belfast, New York, um, in 1889, to pen a feature on America's biggest sports superstar, the champion, in training for the Kill Rain fight, had never been interviewed by a woman before and behaved more like a bashful schoolboy than a growling prize fighter. In now, her- that's kind of how I got around uh, Brooklyn Chase when I met her, though. <laughs> I was like, I'm, you know, I'm talking to Mike Gaffney or whatever, and I was like, hey, Mike, how are you? It's good to see you. Yeah, we'll do some comedy tonight. And then Brooklyn Chase walks in and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, she's, she's, she's absolutely working it, too, because um, in her uh, blunt and soft way, Bly asks John L., about everything from his bathing habits to his earnings. Uh, the journalist wasn't afraid to use her uh, feminine charms, sure. if you will. To, That's how she uh, got the job. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> she, but, wasn't uh, all, she wasn't all complaining about Me Too moments. <laughs> <laughs> not, not with John L. Yeah. But uh, she's, uh, she's unsuccessful, and try tr- she tries to take her two hands to wrap it around his biceps, and she, she can't put oh, wow. her two hands around his biceps. So, oh, wow. So he's you know, a beast. But, but uh, you know... Wow. Um, and and Because I'm left. always picturing all these heavyweight guys to have uh, original Superman body. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. they're not far off. Like they're not in data graded shape, but yeah. that just sounds like a big hulking dude, right? Well, he loved to booze too, man. Because that was the other thing you were saying, right, LP? That uh, Muldoon, his trainer, would have to go. He would occasionally escape training camp and go booze at a bar. Right, right, right. The, the word would go out that uh, you know 
John L. is out. He's you know, he's he's off the reservation kind right, of right, thing. Right, and then right. Muldoon would have to go into town to go find him and, and bring him back to camp after he's uh, quaffed down a few. Do you have anything else on Sullivan? Because I want to get back into Andy Bowen here uh, for a second. Just Sullivan. He was the superstar. As I said, he had... Uh, uh, worked with um, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the White House. Um, here you have this Irish American that's this sports superstar. He goes over and meets with uh, King Edward the the seventh. So now you got you know his parents escaped the uh, British domination out of the old right. sod kind of a thing, and now here he is going back to the other side, and he's meeting with the the freaking King of England kind of right. a thing. So I mean, he's, he's a god of much more right. Big uh, swinging dick is what happened word. to Kilrain. Well, I'll let, I'll let Kev get it. Actually, you're on that one. Oh, really? I, well, I don't have a whole lot on uh, on Kilrain, so we're going to have to... Because uh, Sullivan was a bare-knuckle boxer. I just want to know who won the fight. Oh, yeah. Bob, well, uh, Sullivan was a uh, the bare-knuckle boxing champion of the world, but then also, again, uh, proved his medal under Queensbury rules by becoming world champion in the gloved era as well. Okay. So he won all of his fights, pretty much almost all of his fights on that one. we got a picture more there. He rocked the buzz cut and then the, the long mustache. Curved out, kind of a, would co-opted the, by the hipster. Is he the meme dude? Uh-huh. Uh, no, but he looks very similar to him. Um, now that being said, uh, so when this is going on, when I was 22, I'm 31 right now, uh, even though I look worse. Uh, when I was 22, I convinced myself that if given some training, I had a wrestling background, mm-hmm. and if uh, if you give me some training, and then my you know pre-fight regimen was to spend four hours on hold with Comcast. I yeah. thought that I could land a couple <laughs> shots in a fight, right? I thought I could at least make it one round, or at least, you know, a decent amount into a round in an MMA. Not a UFC fight, just an MMA fight. Okay. But this guy, Andy Bowen, the boy from New Orleans who we were talking about earlier, who was uh, in that squared circle about to, you know, have a, a pretty much an eight-hour fight, um, he had dreams of living this John L. Sullivan lifestyle, you know? Mm. Kid from a poor background, all of a sudden you're able to, you know, you're a millionaire, uh, you're meeting with royalty. The president's inviting you over. Yeah. You're friends with Babe Ruth. Why the fuck wouldn't you want that life? Right. Um, you know, hot journalists groping you during an interview. Um, <laughs> but uh, now Andy had already started fighting at age 20. Um, what age were you when you got in your first fight, Joe? Uh, he's finished. <laughs> I don't know, but 20 is too late. <laughs> well, uh, he's from New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans is a tough town. Just uh. ask uh, my New York Giants that don't do well every time we go there. Uh, Andy Bowen, though, was uh, at age 20, was uh, undefeated through his first 14 fights. He had 12 wins and two draws and a reputation. You hear this a lot in boxing and fighting. He's one of those rare guys that gets stronger as the fight goes longer. Mm. So that's insane there. Mm. And after five years of oh, I bet fight, you those are, that, that's his pro fight record. If he's 20 and starting into boxing, then he's probably had a, you oh, know, it, it's, he's probably had seven years of being just a terror on the streets of New Orleans and punching everybody out. Well, you got to find out how you get good at it before you, you make Well, exactly. Right? Yeah, you, yeah, you know, you don't just decide to get into boxing one day. It's not like this is like a... Like you now, your rep. where you've got CKO, and you're like, I'd like the box to be in shape when you're 20, you know? Yeah, right. Well, I think it's like uh, you and me would uh, would both know, too. Obviously, you've, uh, you've got a much more prolific career in comedy than me, but you've got to start at the open mics. Exactly. You know what I mean? So exactly. this guy's open mic fighting. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> but after five years of pro fighting, Bowen now takes a fight in his hometown. He's going to be the hometown kid. You always oh, think there's boy. some sort of an advantage. Takes a fight against uh, Texas Jack Burke. Another Burke, all right? There you go. Mm. Um, Burke was a last-minute fill-in because he was the trainer of the guy who was originally supposed to fight Andy Bowen. And that guy, they don't say why, but he Gunner didn't take the eyes. fight, probably. Um, uh, 
But uh, Jack Burke, Texas Jack, wound up uh, taking the fight instead. Now, uh, Burke engaged in early trash talk during this fight, that early fight we were talking about for seven hours and 19 minutes. Uh, he talks a lot of trash, reportedly got the better of Bowen in the early rounds, even hobbling Andy in the 25th round. Okay? 25th round. Now, 25th modern boxing, round. by the way, for, if you don't know, is 12 rounds now. So right. that's why th- right. these rounds are— It went are, from 15, and then they scaled it back to 12. And if you're paying from, attention from earlier— 103. Yeah, a, a, <laughs> right. a round would be when somebody got knocked down in the early days, and now Marcus of Queensbury is the more dignified way to punch people in the face. Right. But this is three-minute rounds. This three is three-minute minute rounds. Round. So uh, he hobbles Andy Bowen in the 25th. Looks like Burke's going to win this fight here. But as the fight went on, longer and longer, Bowen lives up to his reputation as an endurance boxer. And he's able to knock Burke to the floor in the 48th round. Only problem is he knocked him out pretty good, but there was less than 10 seconds left in the round, and Burke was, quote, saved by the bell. So the bell stopped the, uh, the, the actual thing there. So fight could have been over in round 48. But at some point during Bowen's relentless attack, because he's almost like Khabib in the UFC where he just yeah. keeps coming forward no matter what. They said Ricky Hatton was like that too, that the amount of shots that he would – he just never stopped moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point during Bowen's attack – Burke breaks both of his hands punching Bowen. That's how oh much he's punched. God. He breaks both of his hands. But now the fight's still got to keep going. They don't know that they, you're not aware that you broke your hands. You're just all of a sudden like, oh, that really hurts when I do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and to end the fight for a doctor stoppage was unheard of at the time. So uh-huh. this was never going to fly. Um, and the two men are very proud, and there's a big crowd, and you're trying to get this. Uh, there's a big purse. There's $2,500 at stake for the purse, which is a lot of money for the time. But, uh, <laughs> I'd fight somebody for 2500 bucks right yeah, now. That's a, that's a, <laughs> no experience. With two broken hands, though? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I was going to say, I think I would probably. Yeah. Is it fair to say that um, you'd probably fight somebody for one month of the mortgage being covered? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. I'd like to not pay January. Go yeah. fuck up the company. Okay, how about this? $2,500? And you guys definitely take care of my copay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, 25 in Bitcoin. Um, yeah. But uh, now, so he breaks his hands on this. And uh, because of that, now Burke's not able to really land anything because if you're trying to punch somebody with your hands and they're broken, you're not going to put a lot of force behind it. But Burke's also so technically sound defensively that Bowen can't capitalize on it. So it's just two guys kind of circling each other and moving around trying to land shots, but nobody's really doing shit. Who is left watching this thing after seven hours? Can you imagine how furious you'd be if you were working at that auditorium? Like, yes. You know how you're at a comedy club? <laughs> That's right, right. And 15 minutes after the show, right. like the comics going along, they're like, is this guy still going? Like, could you imagine seven hours later? The concession is long out of beer. Oh, this God. <laughs> Babysitter's gone home. <laughs> I, I can't say what music venue I've been working at. I think you'll figure it out here. But I was working, uh, uh, doing load-in and load-out for um, a, a local New Jersey music venue. Uh-huh. And you've never seen the juxtaposition more harshly uh, decided than... When a guy's on stage and the, the band's supposed to be off at 11, yeah, and you're in the back in the roadie room with all the local crew that just wants to go home, yeah, yeah, and you hear one of the lead singers go, hey, guys, we're supposed to get out of here, but I think we're going to do a couple more. Are you okay with that? And the simultaneous reaction of the crowd going, yeah, yeah. and the roadie's in the back, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> go home! Go home! <laughs> um, so uh, not for nothing here. Stone pony. The, <laughs> very close. Uh, the crowd, um, due to this brutal second half of the fight, a very sluggish fight, the crowd begins chanting, home sweet home. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're fighting for your life. You have broken hands. You're just trying to, to – and the crowd is chanting, home sweet home, um, which it, it, for me as a comic um, was – I, I always picture it as a – 
if you're working for like I used to hear stories of that uh, the openers for Dice Clay would go out there on stage and they'd start doing their act and they try to construct a, a thoughtful narrative for a joke. Yeah, and people just bring up bring up Dice. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, um, now the fight's getting worse and worse here because it's not even a, a competitive fight here, and the crowd that had arrived for dinner is now starting to wonder if they're serving breakfast at this place. Oh fuck yeah! Fans are falling asleep in their seats. And referee John Duffy, who, uh, for those who have seen The Quiet Man, uh, reminds me a lot of Micheline Flynn. Yeah, right. Um, a quiet it, man from America. Exactly. Uh, a sleeping bag. Um, <laughs> so Mr. John Duffy, the referee, uh, instructs the clearly burnt-out fighters at round 108, uh, 108 three-minute rounds, that they had two rounds in order to find a winner. And at the conclusion of the 110th round, Duffy called the fight a no contest. Right. Oh, my God. God, <laughs> can you now, imagine that? 110 rounds, two busted hands, and it's a no contest. You ready for this part here? So the fight lasts over seven hours. The reason Duffy, it, the fight was truly a draw, but Duffy refused to call it a draw because, it, right back to the rules, rule number seven of the Queensbury rules, is that the referee, in case, uh, in order to finish the contest, has to declare immediately the time and place they're going to finish the fight. So they didn't want to do this so again. They're going to be no rematch. It, he ruled it a no contest because that way, A, they didn't have to have the rematch because who wants an eight-hour shift as a referee? That's supposed to be yeah. like a hobby for retired yeah. people. <laughs> um, Fifteen bucks. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but not for nothing. The other reason they'd want to do it is because if it was a no contest, people are going to ask for their money back. Uh, so if you call, if you call it a, a no contest rather than a draw, rather then um, nobody can ask for their money back. And so there so, goes the gate receipts. <laughs> and uh, not, what they did is that in order to appease the two fighters, the corners agreed to split the purse. So $2,500 went to each man over here. Um, it is later discovered that during the fight, Burke and Bowen both lost an estimated 10 pounds of body weight each during the course oh, of the wow. fight. Wow. John, um, <laughs> That's a lot can, of sweat. John, can I ask a favor, buddy? Mm -hmm. All right, I consider you a friend. Uh, Will you please come over later and fight me for eight hours? <laughs> <laughs> so you can lose ten yeah, more pounds. Man, that I, last ten, that stubborn ten. New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost. I've lost maybe a twelve ounces during a fight, but it's usually from vomit. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad business idea. If uh, if we fight kids coming back from their first year of college for eight hours to, in order to lose the freshman 15. We yeah. just beat the shit out of college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and we just have to rotate we're guys. We're helping. That's, that's right, right, right. <laughs> it's the scene from uh, freaking Dazed and Confused when they're chasing the kids out of the fucking school building <laughs> all over again. Oh, man. Uh, now, Burke, uh, as we said, had uh, two broken hands. He was bedridden for six weeks after the fight. Six weeks oh. after the, the longest fight in boxing history, still to this day. Um, no, no one's beating that. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> nobody. Well, I hope not. Um, now, here's the crazy part: Texas Jack, he mulls retirement and then doesn't, and decides to actually fight a couple more times in his career. So, wow. Um, now, uh, our boy Andy Bowen, who we've been talking about here, the uh, the pride of New Orleans, decided to fight again two months later. So, <sighs> the guy he's in the fight with is still bedridden at this point, pretty much. And Andy Bowen's fighting again. This time he took it easy, though. His next fight only went 85 rounds. Oh, my God. 85 This guy can't knock rounds. out anybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> he can take a punch, though. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, the endurance runner. Um, but, uh, yeah, so now Andy Bowen would be, uh, go on uh, in the next fight. He would become the, light cha uh, the lightweight champion of the South, okay? Now, um, what was interesting here is that uh, – in doing that, he earned a small piece of that John L. Sullivan dream for himself. And, and we're getting to the, the crux of the story here. Uh, Bowen is now set for the fight of his life, literally. Um, 
Bowen is the champion of the South and was naturally paired up with the lightweight. What's a great rivalry in the, you know, the United States? North versus South. Right. right? We're always giving talking. The North talks shit about the South. The South says they're all rude pigs and everything up here. And we're both a little bit right. Um, but uh, the lightweight champion of the South uh, is now our boy Andy Bowen. So the lightweight champion of the North, uh, this guy doesn't really sound that intimidating. A five foot three. I was asking everybody's height here earlier. I don't feel tall at 5'9". I would be towering over this guy. And he is a French-Canadian, much like your friend Pierre, mm. all right, who could handle himself. A French-Canadian from Michigan known as uh, Henry George Kid Levine. Yeah. Okay, Kid Levine was his name. Very famous boxer here. He started bare-knuckle brawling. And uh, By the way, you're not, I don't think you're French-Canadian, right? No. But I, I pictured this guy as you for a second. Uh-huh. Uh, now, uh, then when you realize how tall he is, now I've fixed it and I've gone back to, he's Danny DeVito. Um, <laughs> so picture Danny DeVito rope-a-doping you. That's exactly what Kid Levine was all about here. But um, very interesting guy here. Uh, he started boxing in his early teens. His early fights were against loggers in the logging camps of Michigan. All right? This isn't... Yeah. You're not walking into a creative writing it wasn't, class. He's, and, it, and it's not like he's working as a logger. He's going up to the right, camp. Right, he's like, going I wonder up to what the I camp. can find today. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, now, Levine had uh, – he was beating a lot of the uh, – all the local town, so he knew he had to go professional here. Levine was already a known name, and he had recently taken a guy named Young Griffo, uh, who was the Australian lightweight champion, arguably the best boxer in the world at the time who was legendary for his ability to avoid being hit. So that whole butterfly you know, movement. Mm. Thing. So uh, in order to avoid getting hit, this guy, Young Griffo, was the best, arguably the best in the world. And now Kid Levine goes out there, this little five foot three French Canadian from Michigan, and he fights him to two consecutive draws that nobody can decide a winner on this one. That's how good this guy is. Mm. So uh, now, uh, not for nothing, um, Bowen versus Levine is now set to uh, take place. It's going to be champion versus champion, champion of the South, champion of the North. It's billed as a high-octane fight with combustible elements, you know, like every fucking fight ever. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, the fight of the century. Exactly. And this For time, this year. it's personal. <laughs> yeah. In uh, December of 1894, Levine walked into the ring for his 27th and final boxing fight. Oh, uh, I, I apologize. Uh, uh, Bowen, I rather, I should say. Bowen walked into fight Levine for his 27th fight. Bowen was on the receiving end. It was not even a close fight. Bowen was beating, uh, was being beaten badly. Kid Levine's just running. He's destroying him. Uh-huh. It's not even close here. Uh, it gets to the point now in the fight, in an early round, uh, Levine actually breaks Andy Bowen's jaw. And unaware that his jaw is broken because doctor stoppage, again, not a thing. And you can't complain to your corner because they'll call you a pussy. <laughs> when um, you can't speak. Exa- yeah, you right. can't even tell people. <laughs> What's like, wrong? <laughs> well, there's a, a horrifying story, too, with uh, Brett the Hitman Hart from uh, the WWF that uh, somebody lifted him up and threw him on a barricade once. And it broke both of his lower ribs. And he physically couldn't tell his opponent or the referee that something had happened to him because he couldn't speak. Uh-huh. He, could, he couldn't keep uh, air in his lungs. And he's pretty much dying out there, and the guy's like slapping her like, Bret Hart, you piece of shit, you garbage fans here in Charleston. <laughs> like doing a, a pro wrestling style heel thing. But, yeah. um, meanwhile, you're dying under the lights. But uh, So here's where it gets even crazier. So Bowen's jaw is now broken by Kid Levine, who's just teeing off on him at this point. Uh, in the 18th round, which, mind you, 12 rounds is the modern thing. So this is six more rounds than a modern boxer would ever have, have to go. Right. And not for nothing, Texas Jack Burke from that longer fight, too. He had a quote after he retired from boxing that said, and this was in 1904, he goes, oh, these boxers today, they're all soft. It's, nothing, it's like kids play compared to what we used to do. So once again, that, that it's always 
Yeah. The older generation always thinks the new generation's a bunch of soft pussies. Well, 110 rounds versus 12. Is, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> a, <laughs> he, he might have a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how many, how many fights again, do I have in a day? 12 rounds of guys boxing now is very different from 110 rounds of fisticuffs <laughs> where you don't even turn your hand over to punch somebody. Oh, you know, exactly. you're like, ah, ah. No bobbing and weaving on that shit. Um, but uh, like we said now, so in the 18th round, Bowen is knocked down, already has a broken jaw, gets knocked down hard, real hard, hits his head on the then wooden canvas. They used to make the, the it would just be covered in a, like a sheet type wooden thing. Wooden platform mm. with a canvas. Exactly. Top of it. Levine is a uh, broken jaw, goes down hard, hits his head. Le- uh, Levine, who had walked into the ring for that, uh, that fight, never regains consciousness. Dies the next morning at age 27. Levine died or Bowen? Uh, I apologize. Uh, no, you're correct. I fucked that one up again. This is what I get when I write my notes drunk. Bowen is dead. <laughs> Bowen, Bowen dies at age 27. Kid Levine is rumored right. to have... Uh, the, the, the story is now that you killed your opponent. Yeah. Right? And Levine's actually arrested for the death of Bowen at first. Oh, my so God. You just go in for a boxing match. All of a sudden, now you're getting arrested and people are talking about, well, we charge him as a murder or manslaughter? What do we charge him with? Thank God the coroner's report comes out and indicates that because of the wooden canvas, that's the hit that actually killed him. Uh, So it's almost like Million Dollar Baby when uh, Uh – what's her name? The the toothy gal I'm in love with uh, goes down. Swank. Um, Yeah, there we go. Hillary Swank. Um, But uh, yeah, so now – thank you for correcting me too, by the way. So Levine is arrested for the death of Bowen. The coroner's report proves his innocence. Levine – he avoids charges. They don't give him any charges here even though he did kill Andy Bowen, the guy who was a a veteran of the longest fight of all time. Mm is now dead because he, he couldn't go a full fight with Kid Levine. Um, now, it's an interesting thing here. He's now awarded, because of that fight, he is the first undisputed lightweight champion of America. Oh, okay. wow. So that's the first one we ever have under this Queensberry rules here. So now, however, when you kill an opponent in the ring, sometimes it's hard to, uh, you know, get more people willing to fight you. Uh, no new opponents are coming forward when... Right. The rumor is that the five foot three French Canadian from Michigan just killed a fucking guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I do love it too because I, I I like that he has um, that I always keep mentioning that he's French Canadian because his parents are French Canadian. So in my mind, he has that George St. Pierre voice of oh, you know, it's about being effective with the kicking bag. Oh the, yeah, you know, I just picture him smoking a cigarette while oh, he's dude. beating the shit out of people. Super douchey. That, <laughs> that voice drunk. Knowing he can hurt you? Oh, there's no one in that one. <laughs> oh, John Moses, we uh, do a fight story podcast. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's, it's the villain from Talladega Nights. How yeah. much wow. more do you want to stab oh him? God. <laughs> because he speaks like that. Uh, Ricky you know? Bobby. Yeah. Oh, my he God. He'll never be number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, uh, the Saginaw Kid, as uh, Levine was becoming known as, uh, was matched up with the talented fighter, the Barbados Demon, Barbados Joe Walcott. Um, Not that I, Joe Walcott. And- the yeah. Barbados Joe Barbados Walcott. Barbados Joe Walcott. So, and Barbados Joe was a, they called him the Barbados Demon. He was, a, everybody was afraid of him. Weight classes above him and below him were wary of him. You wouldn't take the fight, which, if, as a fighter, if you can fight outside your weight class, that's like, okay, you're God. Yeah. You know I mean, every fighter tries that at some point. But this guy, Barbados Joe, was terrifying in that regard. So, now his fight against um, Barbados Joe Walcott, uh, Kid Levine, in what is considered the best fight of the early Queensberry era in history. Levine receives a beating so brutal in the early rounds. All right, he's getting the absolute shit kicked out of him by the Barbados Demon. Um, we mentioned a guy earlier, uh, a ringside spectator, 
uh, by the name of John L. Sullivan, the, the bare-knuckle <laughs> brawling former, champion. The former champ. The Babe Ruth of boxing is sitting ringside and starts screaming at the referee, stop the fight, this is brutal, I can't End watch anymore. Uh-huh. So the bare-knuckle boxing champion of the world is trying to get the fight stopped because he can't stand the beating that Kid Levine is getting at the hands of Joe Walcott. Um, now, in this is absolutely insane here. They don't stop the fight because Levine probably A, wouldn't let it be stopped. Uh, and then they continue to go on for the fight here. Levine fucking wins the fight. The second oh, half of the fight, he just completely – he literally pulls the Rocky uh, – what was it? Rocky two or three when he um, when he, just, he starts boxing. Uh, he's a southpaw and then he starts going. Oh, right. So he literally – I don't know how he does it, but Kid Levine winds up pulling the fast one here. And he pummels the shit out of Barbados Joe in the second half of the remainder of the 15-round fight. So it's considered the best fight of all time. Little French-Canadian kid versus a kid from Barbados. Holy right. shit. Um, Levine now takes his talents international and fights the English lightweight champion. Here's a great name for you. All right. John Moses is a good stage name, but Iron Man Dick Burge. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good one, right, Cones? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, now, he beats the English lightweight champion, and this is important here because now he is Kid the Levine— He world. From, right. Yeah, from Michigan, an American is now the first undisputed world lightweight champion. Okay? Now, six uh, title defenses later, including a beating of Barbados Joe in a rematch that uh, Barbados Joe's own corner had to throw the towel in, which was unheard of at the time. Um, proving the sequels are never as good. Um, Kid Levine feels invincible, makes that mistake that so many fighters do. We talked about it earlier. Tries to move up a weight class. Yeah. John, you're a big guy. Uh, I bet you you could, you know, it, if you were to beat me up, uh, you know, I don't think you'd feel that good about yourself. You're a bigger guy than me, right? Yeah. But if I try, if I could beat up everybody my size, then it's like, oh, let me try, let me see what John Moses is all about here. In my mind, I'd think I was invincible to try to go after you. Yeah. And then once you kick the shit out of me, I'd be like, I'm just going to stay with the 5'8", 240 pounders. <laughs> I'm going back down. Uh, but uh, he tries to fight outside his weight class. Conor McGregor tried it and failed. Yeah. Uh, Randy Couture tried it and was successful. Uh, but then Brock Lesnar just finished him. Uh, and then, I mean, you see it all the time with people trying to, to fight outside your weight class. It's really a bad move. There's a reason why it's uh, got a negative connotation to it. Um, Levine decides to fight his friend, the current welterweight champion, Mysterious Billy Smith, who, by the way, has the best boxing name in history, Mysterious. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Goes back to your, uh, your magician comedy. <laughs> yeah, I, I just picture him. It's almost like Joe Bluth from Arrested Development where he's mysterious and he's kind of got like a – he's shooting like a pigeon <laughs> out of him or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. But uh, the reason he got that name, by the way, is because the papers uh, – he, when he would win fights and he was uh, unheralded because he wasn't an exciting fighter to watch – um, all of a sudden, he's the, the welterweight champion. And uh, people said uh, – one of the articles came out and said, who is this mysterious Billy Smith? And he goes, boom, got my nickname. All right, what yeah, else, guys? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what Thank else you. We got? Um, <laughs> uh, Levine actually dominates the first 10 rounds against uh, the larger opponent, his friend Billy Smith, who's a, you know, a lightweight to a uh, welterweight in uh, Smith. But later on in the fight, the size advantage takes over, and Levine's own brother, the guy who taught him to box, uh, who brought him to those logging camps to start bare-knuckle brawling, has to throw in the own towel on that one. So uh, now, LP, do you have anything else here before we go to uh, the, the latter days of uh, Kid Levine? No, we just uh, – that's pretty much it. I mean, if you, you asked earlier about the, the Kilrain fight. I mean, we're, we're jumping out of, out of uh, sequence here, but uh, that, was, that was a biggie with the Kilrain fight, and that was, that was a, a short one. That only went uh, – that only went 75 rounds. So, <laughs> that was a quickie. That was a quickie. Um, it was estimated that there was 3,000 spectators. Again, this was the first nationally covered 
uh, fight. I'm so. surprised more wow. of these guys weren't killed. Yeah, like or that there wasn't more. I'm sure there were. I'm sure there, there are there plenty were, of people there who were. you know chucked in the river after the and fight. And that whole thing with John Wayne and the Quiet Man. You know, he comes over to back to Ireland to escape because he killed he killed the man in the ring. That's not too far uh, mm. too far off the mark as mm. to what was going on. It ain't quite time. fiction, right? Um, it ain't quite fiction. Um, it was uh, fiction based on fact. Um, but, uh, you know, that fight took place in, in Mississippi. It was all a secret location because, again, uh, there was there – was, this whole thing wasn't exactly street legal kind of a thing, although it was, you know, covered uh, – It was a fight club nation, vibe to right, it. Right, right, right. Um, but uh, the fight began at 10.30, and it looked as if you – know, this was Sullivan and, and Kilrain. So it looked like Sullivan was going to, to lose, especially after he vomited during the 44th round. You know, that, that might be a sign that maybe uh, John L. doesn't have it, but uh, he comes back and he gets his second wind after Pukin. So Sullivan, this big bare-knuckle guy, because yeah. you just never associate um, fucking stamina with big fighters. Sullivan's going 45, 50, 60 rounds with right. these guys. Well, in this, in this particular case, 75 rounds wow. before <laughs> Kilrain's manager finally threw in the towel after wow. 75 rounds. So. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, the the bigger the guy, the the less stamina you think you're you're going to have. That if he doesn't knock him out in the first couple of rounds, right, he's Jen- not going to be able to go twelve or back in the day fifteen or seventy five or a hundred. You know? Can you imagine throwing in a towel with, as an Irish fighter too? I mean, there's no more stubborn people on the face of the earth. My one of my ex girlfriends was from Ireland, and I'm pretty much nothing but Irish too. We once broke up because we couldn't decide what to get for breakfast. Neither would concede. You know, these are stubborn people here. Um, now, uh, LP, because I do want to cover the last part of uh, Kid Levine here. Did you have anything else you wanted to? Because you did some killer no. research on this one. I want to make sure we get to no, it. No, we're we're good. I think Kevin. Right. Uh, I'm I'm uh, pulling and, an old. And I know we got to get John out of here because he's got to get back to uh, just uh, living my life. Well, that so. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not getting paid for this one. Uh, so uh, like most boxers of the day, Kid Levine struggled with alcohol and other bad habits. He moved to Paris and opened a boxing school that folded within three years. Uh, the kid then moved back to Detroit and became a rapper known as B-Rabbit, winning an under... Sorry. That, that was literally done just to see if the kahuna was paying attention. I literally even wrote that on there. Um, now, he opened up a tavern, and this is where his life starts to look a lot like Jake LaMotta's at the end of uh, Raging Bull. Uh, the tavern was called Kid Levine's Triangle Cafe. Um, when you're moving back to open and start a business in Detroit, you've been fucking some shit up, all right? It's not good. <laughs> well, wait, 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 wait. Detroit, prior, anytime prior to the 1980s, doing all right. <laughs> it's uh, well, interestingly a big French population out there, too. Detroit was uh, originally known as Detroit, I found out. Ah. Um, but uh, here's how you know he fucked up. Um, Levine was the first ever undisputed lightweight champion of the world. Of the world. And uh, the money didn't really last. And he spent the remaining 12 years of his life working at the Highland Park plant for the Ford Motor Company near his home in Detroit. Wow. Until he died at age 50. Could you imagine? What was your line, Dad? That you're sitting there on an assembly line, but nobody's touching your lunch? (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. You don't have to worry about somebody fucking around with his lunch. So so that he literally died of a heart attack in his home at age 58. That's an old man age for a boxer. Jack Burke died at 44. Uh, The Marcus of Queensberry, he died uh, 10 months before uh, Oscar Wilde, by the way. So Oscar Wilde got the last laugh in the sense that he outlived his rival. Um, 
And then and uh, fuck his son. Yeah, also that too. <laughs> right, <laughs> repeatedly. Uh, Nellie Bly, who was the uh, reporter for um, uh, Mr. John L. Sullivan, who uh, Sullivan died as well, but he was uh, overweight, and uh, they said he had one hundred and ten dollars in his pocket, which was uh, adjusted for inflation. Right, I think it was ten dollars at the time, but one hundred eighty. Oh. Um, so Sullivan didn't have a huge, huge fortune to live off of either. So still doing better than most comics. Yeah, exactly. So, but the boxers are um, the thing was that they would make all this big money from the boxing, but nobody had. Uh, there's no happy ending to a lot of these early yeah, yeah, boxers' yeah, right, lives. Right. So now Nellie Bly, as I said, who was the interviewer for uh, uh, our boy Mr. Sullivan, uh, she went on to go undercover in an insane asylum to uh, talk about the uh, abuse experienced by mental patients, and then she also literally uh, inspired by the story uh, by Jules Verne around the world in 80 days she went around the world in 72 days uh and it is uh i mean you want to talk about again if you look at pictures of nelly blah you could tell she was hot for the time there's definitely mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i looked one up earlier i was like damn for that time period oh yeah <laughs> imagine her with her hair down buddy. <laughs> your attention. but now just for the juxtaposition here like i said kid levine is dead all right and he spent the last 12 years of his life working in a fucking ford factory just for the juxtaposition the current WBC lightweight champion uh, Mikey Garcia, who recently fought the IBF welterweight champion Earl Spence Jr. Uh, Mikey Garcia, uh, he wound up making a reported $1 million for showing up to work that day. Mm-hmm. And again, these are 12 round fights at most. And if you want to go home early, you just put your hands down. Um, so $1 million for no the mars, No mas, no mas. Yeah, just for showing up to work that day. These guys are – so the modern boxers uh, the, all built off the bones of these fucking poor, battered immigrants and former slaves are now making pretty good money getting punched in the face for a living. Yeah. It's still a very tough way to make a living, though. Yeah. I would, so. uh, I would totally agree with you. <laughs> we went way long here on this one, so I want yeah. to uh, apologize to the kahuna here. I want to say – Don't uh, worry about it. I want to say thank you to John for coming yeah, in on this man. one, man. This we had a lot of stuff. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, man. I, I love what you guys are doing, you know, digging up all this info. Oh, I appreciate That's it. Great. And uh, guys, uh, do check out John's podcast, uh, Fight Stories. You got any yeah, dates you want to plug coming up? This is coming out on Tuesday. Yeah, no. Perfect, perfect guest for this episode, though, because like I, I also recorded one of your podcasts a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. and some of the stories I heard in that were freaking hilarious. Oh yeah, that was with they uh, were so good with uh, Darren Kimball, former uh, St. Louis Blue tough guy, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, those guys are interesting guys for sure. John's got a lot of stories like that. So, again, please check out Fight Stories. Yeah. Go see oh, yeah. John live. You can. Awesome fucking comic here. Uh, I want to say thank you to Mike and Ming over to Shared Universe. LP, uh, thank you for uh, all your research on this one. This is a and great for, fucking episode. And for raising you. Oh, and adopting me <laughs> on top of that, too. <laughs> yeah. Just adopting for all of and not touching them. Okay. Just for exactly. all of the above. <laughs> Uh, so that being said, also, Cahoons, thanks for your job behind the ones and twos. But I know we kept you here long. It's a Saturday morning. but uh, Don't worry about you'll it. You'll get it back. I'm not mad I miss Scooby-Doo. Don't That's worry. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, guys, this was the early history of boxing. Uh, my name's K.P. Burke, and this was American Loser. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. Born.